Well, as Nick said, we're in about our sixth week of a series for the book of Acts. If you're uh, new here, what we do typically is just uh, talk through books of the Bible. We try to learn what the Bible said and what it meant in its own context and story, and then what that means for us today. And we're on about our sixth week of working through the book of Acts, which tells the story of the early church. So, um, And we're focusing on the role of the Holy Spirit in the context of that story. And so this morning, um, the talk is called Grace Over Greed. We're going to begin on verse 32 in Acts chapter 4. And why don't you stand? I'm going to read the Word of God. And uh, let's stand for it. Give our hearts to attention to it. Again, Acts 4 verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, um, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell dead and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all of those who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door And they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. This is God's word. Let's pray. Um, Father, thank you so much for your word. It is powerful. And it grabs our attention and grabs our hearts. And we pray this morning that our hearts would be open to hear from you. You're in this room. You're working here this morning. Whether we are conscious or aware of it or not, you're here. You're working. You're wanting to speak. You're wanting to give us great gifts this morning. We pray that our hearts would be expectant, full of faith, ready to receive. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so there's three things I want to do this morning. 
One, I want to just go over the texture and the context of the story. Two, I want to answer the question, what are the makings of a radically generous Christian? And three, I just want to answer the question at the very end, why was this judgment so severe? Okay, so the story, the makings, and three, judgment. So let's begin with the story. Look at verse 33. In Acts 4. Look at verse 33. Luke says that great grace was upon them all. What is God's grace? It is pouring out his undeserved and his unmerited favor. The early believers were awestruck with the grace of God. An extravagant free grace poured into their lives without having to earn it through performance to the law. They were set free. But the gospel did not stop at a spiritual understanding. It never does. Merely spiritual. This grace dislodged the control that wealth and possessions held over them. Because they were all recipients of the same grace, all former divisions... And all claims to superiority were swept away under that gospel flood. How could wealthier members hold on to extra land or houses when members of the same community were struggling to put food on the table? Now, this giving was not guilt-based. It was not mandated or coerced. It was done freely and voluntarily. Now, in understanding what is happening here, it's important to avoid two extremes. One extreme is this was not communism. Some have suggested that. Members of the church continued to own private property. It was not communal living. Members continued to live in their own homes. That's one extreme. The other extreme is making this lifestyle exceptional or situational. Some have suggested that they lived this way because they thought Jesus' return was going to be like imminent, like right upon them. Against both of these two extremes, we should look on this as a norm, an ideal that is possible. For example, look at the phrase in verse 34. Again, this is page 912 in the Bible in front of you. Verse 34 says there is no needy person among them. I'm not suggesting that Linworth is there yet, but it is a reasonable goal for our body. It's all our responsibility to make that happen. And it is our mercy ministry that is led by our deacons that is designed to catalyze this very thing. No needy persons among them. Secondly, over many years, we have taught Jesus' perspective on wealth and greed. We've had classes like the crown course. Or we've had classes like financial peace. We've taught on the role of money and possessions on Sunday mornings. And as a result of that, many of you here lay no ultimate claim to your possessions. You recognize nothing is yours and that everything belongs to God. And greed has lost its hold on you. It's a great thing. You experience a contentment in life that others only dream about. 
So what I am trying to say in all of this is what we read here in the first section is not merely a naive ideal that cannot work in the 21st century. Utopian writers have dreamed about this kind of community for centuries, but they are typically very short-lived if they even start. Marxist writers envision this kind of community as the inevitable progress of history along with the demise of capitalism. But ultimately, they resorted to the power of the state to compel people. And like any social engineering, it changed behaviors without changing the heart. And that never lasts. So this is not just for dreamers. It is an ideal for the church of Jesus that we ought to keep pressing for. But as we saw in our second section, whenever there is something new and powerful springs into life, alongside of that emerges the opportunity for fraud, for deceit, and for hypocrisy. Last week, Pastor Nick took us through the church's first experience of external opposition. Now, for the first time, there is an internal problem. It comes in the form of a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. Caught up in the excitement, they sell a piece of property, dedicating all the proceeds to the church. Ananias and Sapphira apparently coveted the same kind of attention that Barnabas drew. They wanted to be honored like he was honored. But their greed got the best of them. Somewhere between the dedication they had made and the sell of their property, they had a change of heart. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe in a moment of excitement, here at church, you make a big financial commitment. Or maybe you uh, listen to some persuasive uh, sales thing or persuasive appeal that you see on TV. And you make a big financial commitment, but then a month later, after the excitement dies down, you begin to doubt. Do we really want to give that much? What about this? What about that? Writing that check hurts. Well, here, Peter indicates they were under no obligation to sell the property. Neither did they have to give everything that they received. But what happened was is they misrepresented what they had given. The husband and wife were caught in a conundrum. They wanted to save face. They wanted to garner the reputation that others had achieved. But they did not want to give as much as they had promised. And so they lied. They lied. Peter says, interesting enough, in this context here, in the context of the church, that you have lied not only to men, but you have also lied to the Holy Spirit there in verse 3. It's interesting, isn't it? We have been trying to argue, right, that the Holy Spirit is not an it. He's not a force. We've said he's a person. And this bears out here because... You have to be personal to be lied to. You cannot lie to something impersonal. So, this is the texture of our story. We see a wonderful example of generosity, of radical generosity, and alongside it we see fraud and deceit. The real, the authentic, and the not-so-authentic.
So that's our story. Now let's talk about the second point. We're going to spend more time with this. How does God make a radically generous Christian? How do we begin to move towards this ideal? What's really behind a radically generous believer? I think the secret is in verse 33. Again, look at verse 33. I think this reveals something. In verse 33, Luke writes that great grace was upon them all. We see three different dimensions of grace operating here. First, there is a grace they experienced personally. God's mercy that led to salvation. God's grace that gave them an assurance of forgiveness. Secondly, it was a grace that they tasted together in ministry. God was making them adequate to preach, to serve, to witness, to learn, and to love the poor. God's grace gave them everything they need to be the people of God. And thirdly, grace manifested itself in supernatural works so that the church had an overwhelming sense of the presence of God. Okay? Grace to be saved, one. Two, grace to serve. And three, grace to worship. Great grace. All of this spilled over into gratitude. Grace leads to grateful hearts. And these early believers were immersed in a fresh experience of it. Overwhelming gratitude is what made them radically generous. How could they ignore the needs of others when God had been so gracious to them? And here, I believe, is a word for us today from this passage. A lesson for us. To not, for you and me, to not lose our sense of wonder and gratitude. We, too, need a fresh ongoing experience of God's grace. I'm not saying that individual salvation needs to be repeated. Salvation is a one-time event when we invite Christ to lead our lives and we cement that commitment through public baptism. But what begins fresh and real, honestly, can fade. I think we can all admit it can fade over time. I think we've all experienced that. I know I have. I know many of you have. And maybe you're there this morning when we're not overwhelmed with gratitude. God's presence is uh, only in theory. The relationship feels robotic and contractual rather than personal and intimate, like lovers that have become, husband and wife that have become roommates in the same house. And so with God, we need renewal. We need moments when a fresh wind of grace sweeps over us. This is true of us individually, and this is true of us as a church. And what I want to share this morning is that this renewal is a part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
a musician that meant a lot to me by the name of Keith Green. He influenced a whole generation of people in the 70s to lose everything and follow Jesus. And that included influencing me. He wrote a song called My Eyes Are Dry. This is the very simple song. These are the lyrics. He said, my eyes are dry. My faith is old. My heart is hard. And my prayers are cold. And I know how I ought to be alive to you and dead to me. But what can be done for an old heart like mine? You can soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, your spirit of love. He knew that he needed fresh experiences of God's grace in his life. He needed renewal. King David needed renewal. Turn back to Psalm 51, verse 10. It's page 474. Psalm 51, 10 through 12. The great man after God's heart wrote, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Turn, if you will, to the New Testament, page 966. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. And here is the great Apostle Paul. Paul himself. Listen to his words. He wrote, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Churches need renewal. The first century churches needed renewal. Christianity came to Ephesus around 50 AD. And a generation later, Jesus spoke to that church through the Apostle John. Turn to Revelation chapter 2, and we here see the words of Jesus to this church to discern what it needed. Again, this is the last book of the Bible, page 1028. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. Jesus says through John to this church, I know you are, enduringly, you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. They were going through persecution. And you have not grown weary. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned your love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. First century churches, with even that proximity to Jesus, needed renewal. And so it brings to light the question then, if we need this, if we need fresh ongoing experiences of grace to become and maintain to become radically generous Christians, how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, before we do anything, before you muster up courage to pray harder or engage in one more spiritual discipline, before you add to your to-do list, 
we must first recognize the true source of power. And that is the power of the Holy Spirit. Renewal is a ministry of the Holy Spirit. Look at Romans 8, verse 14. So we're going to turn back a few pages in your Bibles. Page 944. Romans 8, verses 14 through 16. I want to share and establish this idea that the Spirit is the power for renewal in our lives. Verse 14, Paul wrote this. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Paul was arguing here in the context that the law brought fear and condemnation. But now, the Spirit in us, what does He do? He testifies. He brings evidence. He makes real. He seeks to convince us that our relationship with God is like a son or daughter to a loving and perfect father. He is seeking to fill your heart with confidence of how deeply God loves you. When the Spirit came on Jesus at his baptism, the Father said, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Spirit seeks and is seeking to convince you that in Christ you share in that same approval and delight from the Father. Now the word Abba, look at the word Abba there in verse 15. The word Abba is like Papa, like Daddy. It's affectionate. It's unpretentious. It was way too informal. It was way too common for the stiff, performance-oriented Jewish leaders to use. They would never have thought to use that term. It says that we cry. To cry is a loud Fervent cry. Tim Keller retells an illustration from a 17th century Puritan pastor named Thomas Goodwin. Goodwin wrote that one day he saw a father and son walking along the street. Suddenly the father swept the son up into his arms and hugged him and kissed him and told the boy he loved him. And then after a minute, he put the boy back down. Goodwin asks, was the little boy more a son in the father's arms than he was down on the street? Well, objectively and legally, there was no difference. But subjectively and experientially, there was all the difference in the world. In his father's arms, the boy was experiencing his sonship. Turn to Ephesians 3.18, if you would. I want to just continue the same theme. Ephesians 3.18, I'm going to read it actually from the NIV, so uh, connect with the screen, if you would. This is a prayer that Paul is praying. Actually, again, this is the same church we just read about in Revelation, by the way. Same church, just a generation later. Ephesians 3, he prays that you may have power 
together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Now notice this understanding of God's love is spiritual and cannot be easily understood. Keller says that the word grasp there, you see the word grasp? He says this word grasp means to wrestle or to capture, as in capturing a city in battle. It means to jump on somebody, overpower him, wrestle him to the ground, and knock him out. Keller goes on. At first it seems like a very strange word, we might say a funny word, to use when talking about the love of God. But what is Paul talking about? Paul is talking about meditating and pondering something until you break through. Until, as we say, it hits you. This breakthrough will happen, of course, only with the Spirit's empowering help. You see, it is the Spirit who helps us slow down and focus on what Jesus did and reveals to us what Jesus did through the cross and the resurrection. And he brings to mind everything Christ won for us, every enemy he defeated, every victory he has secured. And notice also, just FYI, to experience God's love, we also need one another. Paul says that we will only comprehend this four-dimensional love as we are together with all the Lord's holy people. Now, let me balance a little bit of what I'm saying. I've been suggesting that we need a fresh, ongoing experience of God's grace in order to become radically generous Christians if we're going to reach this ideal of community. Now, in saying that, I am not suggesting that we seek only one-time or space-time experiences. By space-time experiences, what I mean is something short-lived, something that's standalone, something that's unique, something with a beginning and an ending time, some encounter with God. Now, these experiences can happen to us. J.I. Packer, in his book, Stay in Step with the Spirit, says, Indeed, there are times when this will happen in our lives. The Spirit will give us real space-time, overwhelming experiences of His presence. Such was the famous experience of Pascal. November 23rd, you've heard of him, the famous mathematician. You may not have known that he was an on-fire believer. November 23rd, 1654, Pascal wrote in his journal, from about half past ten in the evening till about half past twelve, and then he just wrote these words, fire, God of Abraham, God of Jacob, God of Isaac, not of the philosopher and scholars, certainty, feeling, joy, peace. Another experience that Packer cites happened to John Wesley, the father of the Methodist Church, May 24th, 1738. Wesley was listening to Luther's preface to the Epistle of Romans. He later wrote of his experience, I felt my heart strangely warmed. 
I felt I did trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. And an insurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. So Packer says, there can be these one-time real experiences. But he argues, he goes on to argue that this will not do it for us as believers. We need something more. Turn back, if you would, please, to Romans 8.16, page 944. I want to return to this verse. Romans 8.16, page 944. Paul wrote that the Spirit Himself bears witness, or He testifies to our spirit, that we are children of God. Packer says that the Spirit's witness is in the present tense. What does that mean? Here's what he writes. The fact that it's in the present tense is implying that it, it being the Spirit's witness, is a continuous operation that imparts permanent confidence in God. This is what the Spirit is seeking to do in your life. To give you a permanent confidence that you are loved You are God's son. You are God's daughter. And though not always felt as vividly as it is sometimes, and though overshadowed sometimes by doubt and despair, this confidence remains constant, and in the final analysis, impossible to overcome. The Spirit himself sees to it. So, how did we get... To where we are right now. I've been trying to answer this question. Why we need a fresh ongoing experience of God's grace. And now I've tried to argue on how we experience that renewal through the Spirit's power. And when the Spirit brings that power to us. It is the grace. It is the power that brings gratitude. And gratitude towards the towards the. Gratitude towards the grace of God is the foundation for becoming a radically generous Christian. Love poured inward. What is the evidence of love poured inward? What is always the evidence of love poured inward? You know the answer. It's love poured outward. It's always the case. So, practically speaking... How does God really bring this renewal of grace in our life? We see the Spirit's role, but I still yet have not answered the question. Like, how does this actually happen to us? We recognize the Spirit will help us meditate on Jesus. But here's something I want to share as well. It's a pattern that I see in Scripture. I've seen it in my own life and the lives of others. And it's this. That the renewal of grace... The igniting of gratitude often comes for Christians from the experience of pain. It could be physical pain. It could be illness. It could be emotional pain. It could be suffering from depression or anxiety. It could come from a failure at work or a failure in a relationship. It could come from a 
disappointing loss of a big dream. As C.S. Lewis said, pain is God's megaphone to us. And we see this all over the Psalms. All over the Psalms. When battles are lost, when death looms, when the trial continues, when defeat seems certain, what happens to the writers? They look inward. They see themselves in a new light. And many times they see the depth of their sin. They recognize their unworthiness. Their confidence in self falls apart. They disintegrate. Their old forms of comfort are stripped away. And they wrestle with fears and doubts so that once again, like the first time, they come back to God completely naked. They know they can't fool Him. They know they can't impress Him. They know they can't pay back what they owe. They know they have nothing to offer. But in that fresh moment of nakedness, they recognize the face of God and they hear the voice of God saying, I still love you. And they feel God touch that piece of shame that's been exposed. The part that they want to hide or control or keep from others, which is now open before God. And they feel God touching that particular piece that's been peeled open. And they hear him say, yeah, I forgive you there too. I also forgive that. You see, each peeling back is not intended by God to drive you into despair. But it is to make you more like Jesus. And it is to help you grasp the four-dimensional deep love that he has for you. You see, this process... This process, that's the flaming forge where renewal takes place and it transforms the old wine of your life. This is what makes radically generous Christians laugh, last laugh, yes, laugh too. This is what makes radically generous Christians last a lifetime and not just a few short, enthusiastic, foolish years. God establishes radically generous Christians by grace. He renews them by His grace so that gratitude is the fire that fuels generosity. And it creates the kind of community that we read about. So, what does this mean practically? What does it mean practically for you and me? Well, first of all, as generous people... We should look for needs within our body. Paul in Romans 12, 13 says, Contribute to the needs of the Lord's people. This is not a formalized program of giving, but spontaneously meeting needs as you encounter them. And as you are able. This happens a lot in our body. Sometimes the pastors hear about it. Sometimes we hear about it years later. And I'm sure there's a whole list of ones that we've never heard about. That's the first thing. Secondly, in Acts, they also gave through the church to meet needs. 
So there was something of a system in place. If you go back to Acts 4, it says that they laid their gifts at the apostles' feet. This is a way of saying they entrusted the apostles to distribute funds wisely to meet the needs of the less advantaged. You see, it's important for us to realize that the ancient world did not have a dominant middle class or middle upper class like our modern Western world, like what we have right in this room. It is likely in the ancient world, if Jerusalem was like the ancient world, that 80 to 85% of the church was very poor. So the needs were obvious. We know, and we'll see in just a few weeks, there were many widows who did not possess, possess any means of support, and the church supported them. In our church here, we have a dominant middle to middle upper class. We have less people on the margins. This does not mean we should give any less. But we should think about ways that we can support others outside of our body. For example, this could mean helping out the church in the inner city, in our own backyard, which lacks the same resources and has more people on the margins and would be more reflective of what we see here in the book of Acts. Again, for us, historically, this has also meant helping our partner church in Managua, who, again, has a demographic that looks very similar, except they don't have really any wealthy people. Looks very similar to what we see here in the book of Acts. It means helping them, even though the needs may not be right in our own room. Friends, it is true here at Lindworth, and I've reflected on this often. God has made us stewards of much. And to those whom he gives much, what does he do? Yeah, he expects much. And he wants us to use what he has given to advance the gospel and to help the poor. And so whether you give to the church or give through other means, just because the church here looks like everything's together, there's staff and all these certain things, There's a whole world out there with tremendous need that we should be sensitive to. May God make Linworth a community like we see here. May God raise us up to be radically generous Christians who give not from compulsion, but give from gratitude, from love that has changed our hearts. Amen? Can you say amen to that? Amen. May God God make that so. May God make that so. Okay, let me turn to the last point here. And I just have a few minutes, so I'm not going to go long. But I can't leave this go. Because many of you, when I read this passage, must have wondered, man, poor Ananias and Sapphira. (laughs) Wow. Wow. What's up with that? And maybe it brings up a vision or a caricature in your mind of a God who's easily offended, who's erratic in judgment, who flies off the handle, and ultimately cannot be trusted. So I just got a comment on this here in a couple of moments, or a few moments. And you know, we also might wonder, by the way, in the interlude of 
those three hours between when Ananias died and Sapphira hadn't come, it's worth thinking about. Wonder if Peter thought about his own lies, his own denials of Jesus, and the fact that he was still living and breathing. Why did God do this? Why did God take them out so quickly? Well, I must admit, I am not completely certain. But I do know a couple things for sure. One, there is a pattern of firmer judgment in the Bible when something new is beginning. If we had more time, we could look at two examples from the Old Testament. Like this one, shock the senses. In both cases like this one, there was known conscious sin. Two, there was terrible disrespect for something sacred. And three, there was a new era of God's redemptive work in history. God is up to a direction. And God needs to communicate and reveal His holiness for reasons maybe that aren't directly clear to us. So what happens to Ananias and Sapphira does shock our senses. But friends, can I appeal to you? It shouldn't. It shouldn't shock our senses. What happened ought to remind us, as it may have reminded Peter, that the judgment they received is what we all deserve. You see, we get used to God showing His mercy. We get used to God showing His grace. And after a while, we think it is all owed us. We think grace is owed us. We think mercy is owed us. But by its very definition, that is a contradiction in terms. (laughs) We think it's owed us. And we rarely, oh my, we rarely see... We didn't try that for effect. We rarely see someone getting what they deserve. And when we see what someone gets what they deserve, it shocks us. Like Ananias and Sapphira, we have sinned against the holy God. We're a lot more like Ananias and Sapphira than we are like Jesus. We have all taken something sacred in our lives, and at some point we've mocked it, we've despised it, And we've used it for our own gain. Why are you and I still alive? Because of God's mercy. We deserve the same judgment. But Jesus, Jesus took that judgment on his own person. Absorbed it. So that in his death, God could show us his mercy and still be just. So there's a warning here. In this passage, as we close, there's a warning for some of us that unless we repent and unless we receive the gift of life offered in Jesus, our fate will be like theirs. Let me invite the band up. Come on up if you would, Nick. And as they're coming up, we move towards um, our response to the Word of God, our, our response in singing in prayer and in offering. I want to remind you that immediately after the service, our prayer team, our ministry team will be here. And if you want to pray a prayer for salvation, they would be honored to help you pray that prayer to receive Christ and to be assured this morning 
The Spirit wants you to be assured that you are His son and daughter and that it is permanent. It can never be lost. Others of you this morning are aching and longing and pining. You're not even aware, you weren't even aware of it this morning. But you know now that what you're really aching for is not a job change. It's not, it's not changing your circumstances. What you're really aching for is a renewal of grace in your life. Why don't you come up front? Why don't you make that bold step and come up front declaring to God and to others that you want prayer. You need prayer for a renewal of gratitude and grace. Your life's been more marked by bitterness. It's been more marked by a lack of gratitude. And you're dying on the inside. God wants to restore that. God wants to renew you this morning. So work your way up front after the service. Let one of those men or women pray for you. And pray that God would bring a renewal in your life. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for the power of your word. We ask you to receive our offerings this morning. Receive our offerings. Use them for the kingdom. Use them to serve the poor. Use them to proclaim the gospel. God, help us now to proclaim truth to ourselves and to one another. Help us to believe the truths that we sing. Help us to pray prayers that we mean. Fill our hearts with gratitude. Amen.